Freeway Exit is a podcast from KPBS Public Media about the past, present, and future of San Diego's freeways. Learn the forgotten history of the San Diegans who built our freeway network and the activists who fought against them. Freeway Exit explores exciting and radical solutions for building a more sustainable and equitable San Diego. Listen and follow Freeway Exit from KPBS wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm actually starting with the housing first stuff, right? Go for it. Um, all right. So you could say first, housing first. Or you could say housing first. first. All right. Three, two, first. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with NewsRadio 600 Cogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrew Keats. What's up, Andy? Not much, man. How are you? Well, thank you. And fellow managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What is up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. Coming up on the show this week, the County Board of Supervisors voted this week to approve loans to help the city of San Diego buy three hotels and an apartment building to house homeless San Diegans. But it was not without controversy. We'll explain the arguments swirling around the once wonky policy debate over housing first and why it has become a major political wedge issue in San Diego. Finally, KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen is going to join us to talk about his new podcast about the history of freeways in San Diego. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, our North County reporter, Tigus Lane, is covering the issues affecting North County residents, like homelessness, housing, and public health. We launched this campaign a year ago thanks to generous seed funding from the Leech Tag Foundation and donor Jack Raymond. You can give now to support that effort and double your impact as Jack Raymond is offering a generous match. Give now at vosd.org slash ncountynews. Again, that's vosd.org slash ncountynews. Thank you for your support. This week, the County Board of Supervisors voted three to one to approve a plan to help finance new purchases that the city of San Diego wants to do of three hotels and an apartment building, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to convert the rooms in those buildings into rooms for permanent supportive housing for homeless people, right? That's right. And so uh, that happened. They voted for it. Republican Joel Anderson on the County Board of Supervisors was in favor of it, which gave them the necessary three votes to do it. But opposed was County Supervisor Jim Desmond. And his sort of statements about it seemed to line up rather well with the with two other Republicans in town, Bill Wells, uh, Republican mayor of El Cajon, and Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado, who all panned this and what they called housing first. So housing first is a discussion and an idea that we have talked about for a decade. And now it's become something of a fierce debate. So let's listen first to, this is Richard Bailey explaining his concern about this purchase and about housing first to KUSI. This is the mayor of Coronado. The state of California even prohibits counties and cities that are taking advantage of this funding from putting requirements on the individuals that are utilizing this program. So you can't require someone to be sober for using this program. You can offer them treatment services, but you can't mandate that they actually take part in those treatment services while they're part of this program and receiving this housing. And I think unless you couple those two, combined with strong, consistent enforcement of quality of life issues, such as not blocking the sidewalks with 10 camions and enforcing against uh, the use of drugs publicly on our, you know, in our parks right. and on our sidewalks, you're not going to have the desired results. So the state program he's talking about is Project Home Key. This is a big pot of money, $36 million identified for San Diego in particular to set aside and allow grants and other financing to allow these cities to purchase these buildings, turn them into rooms and, and places where people can stay. We were actually on the forefront of this several years ago 
Mayor Kevin Faulkner, former mayor of the city of San Diego, was one of the first to take advantage of these types of funds that the state made available to purchase two hotels that we've done a lot of reporting about, uh, about uh, a conflict of interest that occurred in the purchase of one of them and in just some of the long-term challenges that they had staffing and safety in those hotels, right? Got it. And so uh, it wasn't really a controversial initiative or investment until now. And again, remember the former mayor, Kevin Faulkner, a Republican himself, was on the forefront of it. And so now it's, it's starting to evolve into a wedge issue. So here was Jim Desmond making something of a very similar point to his counterpart, Bailey. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't so much the price tag, which which is was ridiculous, but it was the fact that you know, okay, let's we need to get homeless into housing, but we have to provide or require treatment. We have to require that they get clean and sober. We have to you know, we the taxpayer is just giving and giving, and there, there's no accountability, you know, for the homeless person to get help or treatment. And I think that's the root cause. That's what we really need to focus on. So very similar point. You shouldn't give people places to live until they commit to being sober or are sober. It's a little squishy on where they draw that line. But help us understand. Give me a little history. You did this earlier. Do it for our people. What we're talking about here with this housing first debate and and how it's evolved. So during the Obama administration, the Housing and Urban Development Department, the HUD, uh, changed its requirements for funding to cities and states for uh, these sorts of programs, and they adopted a housing first program that sort of supplanted what had been the previous model, transitional housing. Transitional housing is, you know, we could get, we could spend all day debating the lines between these things, but transitional housing is largely what Bailey and Desmond are describing here. don't just give people homes with, you know, uh, right off the bat, force them to join some sort of treatment program and transition them into housing, transition them from being on the streets into uh, some programs and services, um, perhaps with some temporary housing solutions in there, maybe shelter or something, and then transition them into housing. The, the shift was the biggest problem is to stabilize these people's situations by getting them into a home and then you can provide them services. So one thing you'll often hear defenders of Housing First say is, hey, it's right there in the name, Housing First. That doesn't mean housing only. We're not opposed to services. What we are opposed to is conditioning housing on the acceptance of services because people need to be in Housing First before that you can start treating it. That's, that's the debate. And it's been going on for a long time. It's like been, a, a it's long, going to affair a very long time. Yeah. So that there and there was this idea like we weren't doing transitional housing. We had really switched. We were only gonna get somebody off the street unless they if they had a, a permanent place to be. Right. Yeah. And that was that was like the debate that like the Faulkner administration lived with a lot was activists hitting him for, you know, while publicly committing to housing first that there would still be certain things that looked and looked like or smelled like transitional housing or like there wasn't a full commitment to that shift and that people were were angry about it and so some you know sort of like the the navigation center downtown like hey you're spending a lot of money and this is not a housing first use of money or the tents they put up the giant tents uh, in in yeah, they called it, bridge shelters right yes and um you know there was like a uh, hotel that they tried to buy in um, in sort of on the border between the city and Imperial Beach that was going to be a um, it, 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 it's complicated, but a, a program that w- would be part of it for for housing. Yeah, the safe program. It was like yeah. instead of going to jail, you could go there yeah. and work things. And so, out. so activists were jumping on all of these things and saying, like, this is not housing first. You're you're and, and you know, I think it would be fair to say that, like. Housing first is like a first principle is is um, even if you before you get to the housing is like don't have shelters that require you to be sober to go into them. So you still see those in North County. People have these um, th- there's controversy controversy around whether there are enough low barrier shelters, shelters that you can just go into 
that is sort of uh, in keeping with a housing first principle. Don't don't put up obstacles to people who are doing anything towards getting off the street. Help stabilize them first, and then you can start to do this other stuff. Yeah, that that's the heart of the debate, right? Yes. That, that yes. at at the core is this is this contention about whether you need to get off the streets before you can even start to stabilize your life that way. You need to get into a stable shelter mm-hmm. of some kind of home, and then you'll be able to fix these other things. Versus, you don't deserve that or shouldn't get that. You should graduate to that only after you've achieved sobriety and mental health stability proved a commitment you know provided some sort of return on the the resources that have been allocated to you yeah exactly there's a, a moralizing component of the transitional housing model I, I would say and this was like this debate was like although i say this has been happening for a long time it was like happening in like the wonkiest circles right like there were like actual providers and serv- you know service providers who were um, had built a business model and had been working with homeless people for years who weren't exactly excited about shifting towards housing first in the in the, you know the early days and so there was a whole debate about okay well we've said we're doing housing first now but are we doing housing first are some of these providers still sort of clinging to the practices that really more resemble transitional housing than resemble housing first how much can we really say we've demonstrated this commitment um and and even that sort of had a, a very reminiscent, um, though slightly different, um, echo a couple weeks ago. Uh, Rachel Lang, the mayor's communications director, uh, in responding to criticism of Housing First, said, "Look, we're not doing Housing First because we haven't provided anywhere near enough housing to 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 meaningfully claim that we're pursuing a Housing First strategy. If we don't have enough housing to put people in, then it doesn't." make sense to claim that we're even doing housing first now that that's getting into some sort of like uh quibbling with the terminology and and sort of ducking the essence of the debate i think but well that was the kind of thing that would come up a lot people would be like you need to do an investigation about housing first it's obviously caused all these problems it's not working and i always i would always be like well they're building a ton of shelters like they they've been putting up a ton of these you know, the the library they converted to a shelter, the Golden Hall they converted to a shelter for a while, the convention center, the the tent they put up in Midway. Like yeah. they're they're not foregoing those things in favor of only doing permanent housing for people. And so it was I was always like, well, why is this even a considered a debate? Yeah. Because they're clearly not doing it. Now it's not the same as saying that it's not working because we're clearly not doing it, but just because they couldn't create that much housing and there had to be something done in the meantime. Yeah, there's definitely an unsatisfying debate happening here when like you can't even <laughs> agree whether we've put the pieces in place to, to see if it's successful or not. Um, I mean, the Faulkner administration, definitely, I, you know, I remember them explicitly saying, sure, ha- like housing first, absolutely. But it's, it takes years, decades millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars to build the amount of housing we're going to need so what do we do in the meantime and that was when you started hearing their proposal of dramatically increasing the amount of shelter space and combining that with some targeted enforcement that essentially pushes people into shelters once you've provided them and that i mean that that like dynamic is continues to be the, the like the operating philosophy of the city of san diego the mayoral administration has changed from the Faulkner administration to the Glory administration, but the housing is the way out of this, but it's going to take a long time and we don't have near enough of it. So in the meantime, expand shelters and use enforcement to get them into shelters is, I mean, you know, I, I don't, perhaps people could, could quibble with how much that is their operating philosophy, but that seems to me to be their operating philosophy. There's this, also this desire to blame somebody for homelessness right now. Yeah. And the the clear target of this is well this is liberal California mm-hmm. and this is liberal San Diego, liberal San Francisco, liberal LA that have created this circumstance and in part because of housing first they are to blame for what has happened in the streets, that what we see in the streets is a result 
not not a circumstance that they're dealing with, mm-hmm. but a result of their decisions to embrace this this approach, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I think that there's there's always this look for who's to blame, right? On the left, they look and they say, well, it's the landlords, uh, or it's the or it's the government, but it's the government's inability to let housing be built, right? Yeah, you, you, you or it's look just at the it. structure of the economy in general that that that, that we wages are too low, right? Right, and so, so there's always a push to figure out who's to blame, and in this case, it's it it, it fits nicely that it's the that their their regular villain is the one to blame on this one, which is local government led by Democrats. Yeah, although it would be fair to to point out that uh, HUD under Ben Carson and Donald Trump maintained its commitment to housing first as a condition for federal housing dollars on homelessness. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that's happening here that we're seeing play out with you know, the stunning similarity between statements made by Jim Desmond, made by Richard Bailey, Bill Wells in a press release. Um, even this wasn't actually timed with this, but uh, Tigas Lane, our North County reporter, wrote a story about the Escondido mayor, uh, Dane White, who was formerly homeless. He shared his story having done that. And he made some comments about his perspective on how to solve homelessness as a result of what he lived through. And he was really reflective of the same thoughts that that these other um, leaders were saying. And I, I think in, the other in thing that you need to do treatment he, th- and then you can. Get yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of like, you know, buzzwords that you hear that like root cause, you know, that the, the root cause is not lack of housing or lack of wages. The root causes is mental illness or addiction that like if you hear that, that's an argument against housing first for transitional housing. And yeah. his own story was that of you know, addiction and homelessness. And I think. Although it is true that he he was placed into housing when he got uh, treatment for his addiction. So he's sort of uh, his his story does in some ways reinforce the importance of housing and stabilizing a situation. Yeah, I guess that's where I still don't understand their point. Like, at what point do you have to make the commitment? That's and, to, and that to was through it. And that was the period we were in during these debates in like 2014 and 2015, where you had people saying like, "We are doing housing first. and they were like, you know, uh, absolutists who were saying like, "No, no, 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 that that looks like transitional housing. To you're me. still making them do. You're treatment. still making them do. You know, and and that's it. It does get unproductive and sort of like an argument about. Def- defining terms at a certain point there you know there, there is some gray space in between these things but the other thing that seems to be happening here to me is the Faulkner administration was the defining uh, figure in what conservative Republicans in San Diego believed for a while he was the mayor of San Diego he was by far the highest profile Republican in town his position was Yes, housing first. That is true. All the research is true. You know, he wouldn't debate the, the the studies. He wouldn't claim that the literature was wrong. He wouldn't call you, uh, you know, misguided, nerdy, California egghead liberals. He <laughs> he conceded. He he accepted the premise that housing first was the solution. He just said, in the meantime, we must deal with these the this this situation on the streets, and the way to do that is with shelter and enforcement. And like as I said before, that position has basically been occupied now by Todd Gloria, the most prominent Democrat in town. The, the you know the mayor's office has essentially maintained that position. You could pick out some some ways they may be, be different, but the city of San Diego's policy on homelessness hasn't changed in the last few years, as far as I can tell. Really, mm-hmm. um, and so it's pushed everything to the right. And so the 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 response now from you know, people like Bill Wells, Jim Desmond, Richard Bailey can't be the same thing that the Democratic mayor is pursuing. It's now housing is not just the primary problem. It's not part of the solution. It is misguided to buy these hotels and provide housing because you're not going to do the right thing with it. You're just going to give it to people without conditions like it's, it will actually hurt. You know, the, the, it's gone from you can't just focus on housing to let's not even talk about housing. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's an interesting thing going on as well with the discussion about housing, because if you acknowledge that housing 
at all. The housing market, the housing market in general, mm -hmm. housing supply in general is part of the problem. You have to accept a level of responsibility depending on your own situation, whether you're somebody who enforces the restrictions on building housing or whether you're just a person who has a nice house, right? It just, it, it starts to implicate everybody as part of the problem. And look at somebody like Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado. He maintains uh, he's part of the government of Coronado, which has a very restrictive policy on new housing, right? Like it's not allowed in Coronado broadly, right? Yeah. And so he as a, you know, he has to square that with his with his worldview, which mm -hmm. is essentially at the heart, like Republicans say, well, we're free market people, right? Where mm -hmm. we believe in the market markets, the government should stay out, except in his case, in his part of the county, you, you're not allowed, the government does not allow you to use your property to build things, right? Mm -hmm. And so to square that, you, housing cannot be part of the solution, right? Like you can't really make housing part of the solution if your entire <laughs> approach to governance is that it's not allowed. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, uh, yeah, conceding the one puts you in an unfavorable position in this ongoing argument and, on the other side. Yeah, you right? can't say like housing first, but your city doesn't build much housing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, and so in, then homelessness de facto has to be uh, something else, something wrong with the people Mm -hmm. or morally wrong or a failing that they are again with something we've always going go, we're dealing with which is these are people who have fallen mm -hmm. and and they are they 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 need to be redeemed but they have to go through almost a religious process to to get to uh, you know something that they they can now deserve redemption and get into a house right or get into a place to live and i think that clashes with the other side that says well no you need to get them all off the street and the criticism to them is like, well, can you satisfy that demand? Mm -hmm. We we can't build those many that, that many homes that rapidly. We can't provide wraparound services for that many people that rapidly. And so, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Like, how how or what's the plan? What's the emergency plan for all the people on the streets while this happens? Yeah, and is it just to let them be? And and I think those two worldviews they're both problematic. But they're like they're starting to clash in more like clear partisan lines right now. Yeah, there's this other thing going on that's that's just interesting as somebody who's observed these sorts of debates for a long time, which is the hotel acquisition strategy was appealing broadly to conservatives, I think, in a way that might have been like controversial among progressives 10 years ago in that it bypassed the affordable housing industry. Right. Right. The, an affordable right. housing industry that conservatives had been really opposed to funding on the grounds that it took too long to build the housing. It was too expensive to build the housing. It provided too few units at too great a cost for the, you know, the, indus the industries or, uh, or markets that you taxed to fund it and that you shouldn't do it. Right. This is like a completely different thing where it's like, you get the housing units in a couple months as opposed to four or five years. You don't have to stack up all these complicated funding structures to do it. And it's, and it's cheaper on a port per door basis. Now you have people still being outraged that it's like $450,000 a hotel room. But that's better than seven. Even though that's better than what the, the alternative of, of building affordable housing to say nothing of the time about the, you know, the value of time of getting it in a couple months. Um, and so, like, I think you would have have if everybody was staying true to the principles outlined 10 years ago and keeping in mind that these are actually different people in a lot of cases. It's it's, you know, I'm assigning people to the roles of their predecessors. But if the if the political lines had stayed the same, we should buy hotels and transition them into places for people to 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 live as housing while we treat them. That would have been the conservative alternative. And in fact, it was under Mayor Faulkner. It would have been the conservative alternative to the raise the linkage fee, assess the value on new commercial development right. based on the fact that there are jobs there and that the you know some of those will be low wage. And then we'll use that as a carrot to attract other funding sources. And then we can 
give that to nonprofit developers who will build it over a five year period. And at the end of that, we'll have 30 units <laughs> Ten people at, will get, yeah. get it like that was the thing that used to make conservatives angry. And this is like the, the alternative to that. And it's now it's still like, no, 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 it's bad. Yeah. Giving them the housing at any price is bad because it's the wrong solution. And like that is a that's a, a real tectonic shift in this debate over a 10 year period. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. Now, Andrea, your team and you produced this week a couple of compelling stories about people actually trying to navigate this world or who did navigate. In this case, the Escondido mayor, uh, Dane White. So tell us a little bit about that story that Tigus did and um, what you pulled from it. So his story, um, he... From a very young age, um, you know, he told Tigist he he struggled a lot and he had a lot of problems with his family. And um, he, you know, was living with his parents and he kept getting in trouble. He moved with his grandparent. And that was a point where he started getting into more trouble. And eventually he became homeless. And he was he was very young. He was a teenager when this happened. And he ended up going down a spiral where a lot of young people do when they're, you know, kicked out of a, a family member's home where you're kind of, you're homeless, but you're couch surfing, right? You're not homeless, maybe living on the street, but you're couch surfing. And um, he ended up finding an apartment with a friend and kind of started falling into drugs and addiction from there. Um, and then just kind of spiraling from, from that position um, to a point where he was on the street and living behind a 7-Eleven. Yeah, in Escondido. In Escondido, where, where, where he grew up. And where he's now mayor. Yeah. And so that we hear often about how hard it is for people to get out of these situations and move up. And now here's somebody who moved up, not only into a stable situation, but moved on. Was there a moment that he described that that started to click or it worked? And it was it was what he described was treatment, right? It was a, a stable place to live and treatment. Yeah, I mean, he. I mean, he, he focuses more on the treatment than the stable place to live. Yeah, but focusing on the treatment, he says that is the, that was the root cause of his homelessness, and I think that's where these sides are talking past each other a bit. It's like, yes, people would disagree and say, no, 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 the root cause of your homelessness was that you didn't have a home. Yeah, and lots of people have homes and are addict, maintain long running addictions for weeks or months or years. Um, often that's in different places where housing is cheaper. And so it's easier to maintain your, your living situation, even in, in the course of an addiction. Um, but he, he nonetheless, he's what's interesting about him. He's willing to spend money on the problem. Yeah. He says we should increase the amount of money we spend on services and treatment. And I don't know that people would necessarily turn that down. What's it, you know, like again, housing first, provides room for ample treatment options, whether it's mental health or addiction. Where something changed this week was we should not spend money on housing. This is counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And 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 I don't know I, I didn't hear from him in that article that he is going quite that far. Yeah. He's he's more of just saying the root cause of my homelessness was was my addiction. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of shaping my take on his what, on what our city should do. Yeah. So then you did um, a piece this week as well on a couple you've been following. Tell us about them. This couple, Tammy and William, they became homeless after the pandemic. Uh, Will's job where he worked um, had shut down. He had some disability issues, but um, they were getting by on him just picking up odd jobs in construction. He also worked for Amazon. Um, they had to leave the apartment that they rented in El Cajon and they didn't have enough money saved up because of their financial situation to, you know, pay the deposit, move in somewhere new. So they decided, okay, we'll live in our car, kind of see what we can save up and maybe go from there. Um, it turned out to be a much more chaotic situation because while he was at work, Tammy would have to sit in the car and, you know, she became increasingly worried. Well, what if the car got towed, right? So there's all these thoughts going through her mind, anxiety about just kind of sitting in a car all day because they have two dogs and she has a mental or she has she has a health condition where she can't drive. She, she gets seizures. Um, so eventually she sought out the safe parking lot program that the county just opened run by nonprofit Dreams for Change. They signed up. It was a few 
you know, months of relief to just have a safe place to park at night because that's how these safe lots operate, right? They open up. Some of them offer a variety of different services, but for the most part, you if you live in your car, you can park there at night without having to worry about, you know, people coming up to your car and asking you to move along. So they were there for a couple months, but just having to navigate a system of like basic things, trying to get funding from the county to pay for her car repairs, uh, navigating like all these different programs, trying to work with the staff, um, trying just to get any kind of assistance to get into stable housing because that's what she wanted. She just wanted a little bit of time to breathe while she was at that parking lot and then move to some sort of to housing back to an apartment. Um, That has not happened. They've been homeless. Next week will be a year. And, um, you know, they were in a position where they were working. They could have easily just had a couple months to get back on their feet, but there is no housing to move them into. And then the actual nightmare scenario was their car, right? Their car. They were, when you're living in your car, your car needs to work. Yeah, your car needs to work. Basically, their when I met them, their car had gotten really bad to the point where like they turned it on just to show me how bad it was and made like this terrible sound. All the people we were outside of Starbucks and all the people around us like looked at us like, "What's going on here?" Um, and so she was adamant like, at any point, this car is going to break down and we are going to be on the street. Like, how much vulnerable does a person have to get to get some sort of service? And that's what happened. A couple of days after I met her, she texted me and their car broke down and there was basically nothing that they were, you know, could do. So they had to sleep in a tent. Eventually, Dreams for Change um, and the county helped them to move into a motel just temporary while their car is getting fixed. But um, again, once their car gets fixed, they'll go back to living in their car. I think what's interesting about your story was just the all the steps and Every step you go down the ladder of toward actual street homelessness, it seems like getting back up the ladder is like twice as hard, right? That's what I keep getting out of all of these stories we do. This is what the 10th of these stories we've done where somebody's fallen down all the way and climbing back up is just really hard. And and that's what's the the moral and the theme throughout all of these. And uh, no better one than this to express like the, to get stability you have to have a job to have a job you have to have stability and to to have st- a job that pays enough to get into a home you have to be able to save money but then you start racking up bills and parking tickets and uh and repair problems and and the worse it gets for you the harder it gets to get out it's just a brutal vortex it mm-hmm. feels like mm-hmm. i mean and and their problem started even before they became homeless right they were having issues with a landlord asking for their landlord to fix their apartment. You know, that turned out to be big chaos for them. And they had to leave that apartment. Then they're living in their car. The registration's paid for, but it didn't pass a smog check. You know, so she's applying for these programs. And it just keeps spiraling from there. The The tags are going to be expired. She's not going to be eligible for this program anymore. She just can't get someone to help her pay for the car repairs. And also because they live in their car, they need somewhere to stay just a couple of days while the car is getting repaired. So it's just like constantly, constantly. Then finally you're on the street, you're sleeping in a tent where you're with your dogs and you know, okay, where do you, where do we go from here? Right. We're in a worse situation. We don't even have a car where, you know, her partner can get to work anymore. So now he's not even working. Yeah. It, it seemed to me that all of the problems that they encountered are, uh, immensely frustrating for them and like you can see how hard it was also i think the amount of administrative perfection it would be it would require to assume that no one utilizing these programs would ever encounter these sorts of hiccups is unrealistic and that the margins on any like just squeaking by are so thin and that that the sort of like rounding errors of problems in you know the strings tied to this state program for car repairs expiration or the, dates the expiration dates on these the expiration dates on these things that are built in for like basic allocate you know mm-hmm. funding allocation reasons or the hours on the you know on the the safe parking site now you you could probably just get rid of the hours but you know when they weren't being able to connect with their case manager all of these things were like 
life is complicated for everyone and I see these sorts of problems being basically inevitable. But when they come to you when you have no room to, to spare, mm-hmm. none, you can't just like stomach that that one little hiccup and the next thing you know you're in a tent is what's so grim about it. I mean like that it, that it requires – Complete paperwork perfection, no hiccups, choosing the right shop mm-hmm. the first time you get it, you get a, uh, an estimate. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, you don't do that when you're there's thousands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't <laughs> you do You just that. go to like, any shop. <laughs> right. Uh, if it's like, yeah, exactly. I, I don't want to draw an analogy because no scenario I can come up mm-hmm. with carries the stakes of the one that we have here. But like in any situation where you have no margin for error. Well, guess what? Things still go wrong, and you and and you know that's when that's when you have problems. I think that's what gets me too about this whole thing. Again, we get this. There is so much diversity of what people are experiencing there. Obviously, there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of mental health crises occurring everywhere. But there, but the, it's not like there's a clear group of them, and then a clear group of of folks like this that have fallen into hard times. The the melting between those two worlds is is extreme, right? Like you're, there's a very good chance that if they have to spend too long in a tent, then they are going to have to, you know, they're going to have to have some trauma counseling pretty soon as well, or they're going to turn to ways to make it feel better, right? Uh, if somebody offers you a pill that's going to make you feel less cold, that might be attractive at some point, and things like that will melt together. It's just not easy and you can't just look at the crisis and say like those those are bad people who have fallen and those are there's maybe there's a few good ones we can get them out of it but the rest you know have to pay out some kind of price it's just not it's not as clean as everybody i think or those folks would want it to be uh so what do we know are they we're just they're just waiting to find out if there's a path to some sort of more permanent housing yeah so they are currently still at the motel that they were set up at and they're waiting for their card to be repaired but you know, kind of like she said, with what I ended my story with is it's nice, but it's only temporary and they don't have any sort of housing lined up after that. So they'll likely go back to living in their vehicle. Likely we'll have to go back to that parking lot. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no happy ending here. We are going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We are now joined in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio by KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen, making his second second appearance on the show. First yeah. in the studio, though. Yes, last time we were remote. So yes. yes, was that was that pandemic era? It was like July 2021. So I was recording was like from my home. Yeah, pseudo pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay. Well, we are here. You're here now because you have a uh, fantastic. Project pr- program new Podca- podcast. It's called a podcast. Okay, yeah. it's a podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you like were, this thing yeah. that we're on. Right it's a now. show. It's yeah. a new show you a have show. Um, called Freeway Exit. Yeah, right. It is a, a history of the uh, creation and the protests against and the movement for and the funding of freeways in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Past, present, and future. Past, yeah, that's present. what. That's sort of the tagline is. Um, you know, there's a lot of forgotten history about our freeways. Most of us have come to San Diego uh, after they were already built. And we kind of take for granted that a lot of those spaces used to be something else before those, well, all of them used yeah. to be something before they were built. Um, but we don't know that history. And freeways are just at the center of so much of our political debates in San Diego around uh, transportation and climate action and housing. So it just seemed like a real ripe topic for uh, something you know, a bit longer form than what we're used to from KPBS. Yeah, we're also sort of getting into an era where like the creation of the freeways was long enough ago mm-hmm. that even the older people in your life probably don't remember a time without them. Yeah, whereas, absolutely. Whereas like, you know, in the 70s or 80s, there were people f- for whom the creation of a freeway was fresh. A San Diego without them was in their memory bank, right? You know, there are fewer and fewer people around for whom that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like the... 
the freeways, I mean, the, the first freeway in San Diego, and this is like right in episode one, the first freeway that ever came to San Diego was the 163. Uh. At the time, it was called the Cabrillo Parkway. Um, and it, it started basically uh, where more or less where the eight intersects the 163 now. And it went down uh, through Balboa Park to uh, downtown. And so that was 1948 when it was built. Um, but then it wasn't until the mid 50s. And we talk about this in episode two um, the, after the passage of the Interstate and Defense Highways Act mm-hmm. uh, and this huge infusion of federal spending. Uh, for freeways across the entire country when we really start to see the freeway in San Diego take off and shape how our city is actually built. Yeah. So the 163, I mean, the 163 is 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 fascinating because it's it's part of a history of what we've done with freeways. It's also a part of a history of like what we've done to Balboa Park, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the, the for, for a place that calls that its crown jewel, Yes, I don't know that we that our actions are especially consistent with the <laughs> moniker. Yeah. Um, Let's I, put a freeway. There aren't many crown jewels that have, that are cut up by a freeway yeah. that are in the flight path. Right. Uh, <laughs> that have a landfill in them. Yeah. That are occupied with a uh, bus maintenance yard or a, you know, city truck maintenance yard. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there's a lot of stuff that is like generally considered unwanted, like not in my backyard stuff. Yes. That somehow ended up, directly in the center of our supposed crown jewel. It's a crown jewel but with character. Yeah. Yeah. The- I mean, one of the yeah. one of the one of my early memories in San Diego was hiking on the Bridal Trail when a friend of mine was visiting and for anyone who doesn't know, the Bridal Trail goes right next to the freeway. It runs like right parallel to the freeway. And it's a really it just the contrast between the beautiful setting, the 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 walls of the canyon, and um, you know, right now they're all covered in wildflowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the contrast between that and the um, feeling that you get just like standing right next to all of that traffic and the noise, just like not even being able to hear yourself think. I, I remember hiking that trail with friends and thinking, okay, I guess this is how San Diego does parks. Um, and and then, you know, I think a lot of us in San Diego have had that moment where we see the pictures of Cabrillo Canyon before the freeway was built yeah. with the lily pond under uh, the Cabrillo Bridge. And, you know, it, it's there. there is, I think, for a lot of us, a sense of um, loss of, of what uh, the park used to be before uh, so much of the, that space was taken over by cars. And yet- you have this tidbit in the the show. What w- what was the vote in favor of the creation of the Cabrillo Freeway? Yeah, it was in 1941. So people may know that there's a part of the city charter that requires a public vote for any uh, dedication of any uh, part of Balboa Park that's not parkland. So uh, in order to uh, give Caltrans, at the time they were called the California Division of Highways, uh, in order to give them that space and to, to build the freeway, there had to be a public vote. And that happened in 1941, and it passed with 89% of the vote. 89% of 89% the vote. 89% of San Diego voters said, yes, let's put a freeway through Balboa Park. What do, could you think of something that could get 89% of the vote in San Diego <laughs> no, right now? No, literally nothing. No, not even nothing in my mind could I think of that that, that many people would agree on. But, you know, and we talk about this in, in the podcast, like... There was a real sense of uh, that freeways were progress, that this is the future. And, there, you know, uh, I mean, at the time, this was before World War II, but, um, you know, in the aftermath and after the freeway was built, uh, people had a lot of disposable income. They were buying cars in greater numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they There was a, a greater appetite to for people to have their own homes, not live in, uh, you know, close quarters anymore. So that's, you know, why we ended up with uh, all the suburban sprawl that we had here. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's it's pretty crazy to think that. And, and, you know, if you were to ask someone if or if if we were to imagine an, an alternate universe where the freeway was not built through Balboa Park and we were to have to hold that vote again today, how many people do you think would vote for it? I mean, I have no idea, but I know it's not 89 percent. No, no. I mean, what one of the things that struck me in that episode is you talk about there was there was like a common vision that this would be good for the growth of San Diego. This would be part of it becoming a bigger city, allowing it to punch alongside LA and San Francisco. Um, we spent a lot of time debating about like whether there are good, I- like whether one idea or another is a good way to do that. But even before we get to the idea of like litigating any specific proposal, I don't think there's any shared vision now that we want to do that. I think there's like a group of people who would like San Diego to be 
bigger and to grow, to uh, pursue more economic opportunity. But then there's like as much a group of people who are like, no, what we should do is stay like this, mm-hmm. stay as we are, it, it, or maybe even move backwards some, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's like, that's one of the, the, the sort of historical juxtapositions that I, that I drew out of the show is like, oh, there was a time where there was a, a shared vision that San Diego could be bigger and more. Yeah, I mean, I I I couldn't tell you like which side has the majority. No, uh, no, no, no. I, I, I think no. that um, it would take a lot of very sophisticated polling to figure out, you know, how many people in San Diego want the city to grow and how many don't. Um, but I think it doesn't really matter what people think because the city is growing and it will continue to grow and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Mm-hmm. But bringing this back to freeways, I mean, the real conversation we have to ask ourselves uh, to, to have in San Diego is uh, as we grow, are we going to continue to invest in the freeway? Mm-hmm. And uh, or uh, given all of the commitments that we've made around climate change and reducing our uh, dependence on cars, is there an alternative uh, where, you know, we can see a future where fewer people are driving, people live closer to work, live closer to all of the amenities that they need day to day and don't need to drive on the freeways as often? Mm-hmm. Or if they do drive on the freeways, it's for a much shorter distance. Mm-hmm. And if that's the future that we can see, like, what do the freeways look like? Mm-hmm. How much space is left over? Uh, you know, the, the congestion that we experience, it's really only for a couple hours each day. Uh, outside of that, the freeways are functioning very well at moving a lot of people very fast. Um, but during those peak hours when there's a lot of demand to use the freeways all at the same time, that's when you experience congestion. And, and you know, people from Sandag will tell you if we can reduce the number of cars on the freeways during peak hours by about 10%, we can get speeds back to normal. So if there is a future where we have excess capacity on our freeways, then what do we do with that excess capacity? Do we just keep it like a freeway because that's the best use of that public land? Mm -hmm. Or is there a future where we can imagine some other type of use for that land? Well, so you have some some proposals that you go through in the show Mm -hmm. that are not specifically, you know, new freeway expansion proposals, but freeway mitigation, freeway decommissioning, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What are what are what are some of those uh those ideas that you that you go through in the show? Yeah, well the the first one we talk about is um decommissioning the 163 through Balboa yeah. Park. And this is an idea that um circulates on Twitter every now and again. Uh there was you m- might have seen at some point this um a Twitter account that generates images of streets and freeways without cars, uh, you know, pedestrianized mm-hmm. uh, streets and everything. Um, it's AI image generation. And they did that for the 163, showing this beautiful park with somebody biking and a you know a line of flowers under the Carrillo Bridge. And um, and it really went viral. I think that that says, you know, people are interested in imagining that future, even if they can't see it happening anytime soon. Um, and so, you know, one the 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 most radical solution to that question or the the most radical answer to that question of what do we do with the excess capacity in this future where people are driving a lot less the most radical answer is let's decommission a freeway just completely remove that from the network and do something else else with that land um this has been done before like yeah. it's not something that is totally out of the question or that there is no roadmap for us to follow rochester new york decommissioned their centri- their inner loop freeway um, and built a boulevard uh, in episode five, which is going to be dropping on Tuesday. Uh, so folks can should you know subscribe now and, <laughs> and um, listen to that when it drops. Uh, we're talking about the that's freeway exit available freeway on exit. all of your podcast platforms. wherever you listen to podcasts. You listen to podcasts. That's right. Um, so uh, in in San Francisco after the 1989 earthquake, uh, two freeways in the city were so severely damaged that the city decided it was prohibitively expensive to reconstruct them to a higher mm-hmm. seismic standard. So they decommissioned those freeways and they redeveloped that land. And um, surprise, surprise, it's been a universally lauded success. Uh, we, we dig into in, in episode five into the concept of traffic evaporation, where, uh, when you reduce the capacity of a road network, uh, it doesn't automatically just mean that traffic gets worse and stays that way. People adjust their behaviors, uh, according to the capacity that's available to them. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, decommissioning is definitely the most radical uh, idea. There are also ideas around lids, uh, you know, freeway lids, which we have one already in in City Heights, Toralta Park, which we talk about in episode four. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's also a proposal to build a lid over uh, I-5 in Barrio Logan, which is arguably one of the most impacted communities in San Diego by freeways. Um, so yeah, those are some of the ideas we talk about. Um, yeah. also Golden like, Hill, I, you know, I, I live in Golden Hill. There yes, used to be, there was a, the 94. Yeah. There was a, a robust conversation for a while about mm-hmm. a freeway lit over the 94 kind of stitch back together, Golden Hill and Sherman Heights, which were at one point, one community before, mm-hmm. before the creation of the 94. There's even been a discussion about the downtown to Bankers Hill freeway caps on the, that, that the part of the yeah. S curve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about freeway lids is that, uh, there, there's a lot of support for them uh, uh, because they're a very um, elegant and beautiful way to reconnect two sides of a freeway that have been divided. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also, uh, in most cases, prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Yeah. They, they can cost up to a billion dollars. And uh, there's a program in the bipartisan infrastructure law called Reconnecting Communities, where the U.S. Department of Transportation is giving out grants to local and state governments in order to mitigate some or, you know, repair some of the harms that were done with the freeway boom of the mid-century, particularly in low-income communities of color. And uh, that program has, I think, a little over a billion dollars. So uh, if they were to take, the, you know, if they were to take all that money and dedicate it they to one project. One cap. Yes. Yeah. So, nice. so at the <laughs> same time. Us, that, please be us. Please be us. Right. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I mean, and, well, and they, they actually announced the, the first round of awards. There was an application for uh, the freeway lid in Barrio Logan, and it was not given funding. Okay. And if you look at the number of projects that applied for that money versus the ones that were actually awarded it. Uh, there's just a huge gap. I mean, the, there's nowhere near enough resources to mitigate all of the damage that was done by freeways, and lids are not a scalable solution. Yeah. Unfortunately. Andrew Bowen, Freeway Exit, available on all of your favorite platforming devices for podcast and other means of audio listening. Uh, well, great job. It's a really interesting lesson. People will learn a lot about San Diego and freeways in general. Thank you. So Andy and Andrew and their mustaches really got into it here. I'm going to put up a full version of this conversation as its own episode where they get even deeper into this topic, into freeway decommissioning, uh, environmental impacts, the future of transportation, and a spoiler for that last episode of Freeway Exit. That'll come in your feed next week. Keep an eye out. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. And don't forget about that gift match for our North County reporting. We're halfway to our goal and your donation will make a difference. You can give now at vosd.org slash ncountynews. That's vosd.org slash ncountynews. The link is in the show notes. And I'm also putting up videos for this podcast on a regular basis. So check out full segments and clips on YouTube. And I'm putting out some more on Instagram and TikTok as well. So you can check us out there. Scott Lewis is our CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats is managing editor. Andre Lopez Villafania is also managing editor. I'm Nate John, producer for the show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 